Welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Amy Jo Kim. Amy Jo Kim was named by Fortune as one of the top 10 influential women in games. She's a game designer, community architect, and innovation coach. Her design credits include Rock Band, The Sims, eBay, Netflix, The New York Times.com, Ultima Online, Covet Fashion, and Happify. She's helped thousands of entrepreneurs and innovators. She's been uh, an author more than once. She's got a book, Community Building on the Web, and Game Thinking. And she also teaches game thinking at Stanford University and the USC School of Cinematic Arts, where she co-founded the game design program. And not only all of that, but she also holds a PhD in behavioral neuroscience. So welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. So I have a pretty uh, conversational style. I love to just kind of hear from people a bit about how they got started. So um, you've been doing this a long time. I'm sure yours is a long story. But how did you how did you first move um, from behavioral neuroscience into game design? So I put myself through graduate school by programming. Uh, I was initially a self-taught programmer, but then I took a number of graduate level courses. And when I got out of graduate school, I got a job at Sun Microsystems when they were uh, getting started. So it was really the dawn of the internet, or at least the internet that most people were using. And I started working in tech um, as a programmer, then as a designer, then as a producer and creative director. I kind of worked my way up. And when I was working after Sun, I worked for Paramount Paramount and Viacom in their advanced product design lab. So that's really when I got into game design. I was working with top brands like Nickelodeon and MTV and Star Trek and Entertainment Tonight on taking their brand and translating it into the internet, which was still pretty new then. Building websites, building multiplayer experiences, and I started going to the Game Developers Conference when I was working at Paramount because I was the person that knew the most about the internet since I had worked at Sun. And when I went to the Game Developers Conference, initially just to kind of check it out and see if Paramount wanted to get involved, I really felt like I had found my people. People were really weird. Some of them were a little greasy and didn't smell too good, but (laughs) they were so creative and imaginative while also being intensely analytical and smart. And it was that combination that just drew me and made me feel like, ah, these are my people. So I did some game work for Paramount, particularly I did some prototyping for MTV. And then uh, when they moved our lab to New York from California, I elected to stay in California where I live. I started my own business and I did community design, game design, product design, all different kinds of things. But my specialty was always um, multiplayer social systems. Mm. That's what I'd worked on at uh, Paramount. That's actually what I'd worked on at Sun. And so my career in gaming is really largely working on multiplayer games. 
and building out the social systems as well as, you know, having some creative direction on the overall game. So Mm -hmm. the move was really a move into tech with my behavioral neuroscience background. I decided I wanted to have more freedom and flexibility than I would if I got a postdoc and worked at a university. Yep. But I've also had ties to university. I co-founded the um, game design program at USC with my friends, Tracy Fullerton and Scott Fisher. I co-taught the first game design classes there with Tracy. And then I've also taught game thinking at Stanford, but I am largely a practitioner versus a, um, an academic. But I, I love to teach as well as to do. Mm-hmm. So that's been really where my career has developed. I was a uh, contributor and system designer on the games that uh, you mentioned earlier, The Sims and Rock Band and Covet. I helped the New York Times build their first paywall and the experience beyond their paywall when they were turning mm-hmm. their newspapers into a subscription, mm-hmm. uh, so, which again was a multiplayer social experience for them, especially in oh, the, um, how we dealt with comments. So I want to hear about all these things, but let's dive into that one, actually, because I feel like that's that's one that's particularly interesting because it's not a game itself. So how did what? Tell me more about that. So when the New York Times was first creating their subscription service, they worked with experts such as myself to figure out what the service should be and how they should run it. And now it seems like the olden days, because so many subscription services exist, particularly for uh, news media. But it was one of the first uh, first times that a major newspaper was doing that. So we did a lot of, um, we did a combination of things. Uh, the Game Thinking Methodology, which you can read about in the Game Thinking book, is absolutely for non-games as well as games. It's for any creator who wants to create a game-like experience, not gamified, but Mm game-like. And we interviewed a lot of their best customers. We talked to people that had considered a subscription. We talked to people that had other subscriptions to really understand the landscape and understand the consumer mindset. Mm -hmm. We modeled out how we would um, reward people for their subscription if they were a subscriber for one month or six months. What would that look like? What would be different if you were a subscriber for six months than you know one month? Those sorts of questions, which are pretty basic to designing long-term engagement. Mm-hmm. And we uh, looked at some gamified solutions where we had levels and points. We put those aside. We didn't want to do that. We mm-hmm. looked at um, what powers and impact people could have. And one of the things we worked the most on, and again, this was many years ago at this point, was one of the things we worked a lot on was comments and if people could earn the right to get their comments published or more likely to um, to be published. Mm-hmm. We toyed around with introducing um, sort of earned badges next to people's names. So if they had been a commenter who had gotten a lot of good feedback from others, they would get more clout and visibility. And that was the, that was the project that actually went forward was mm-hmm. integrating the subscriber experience mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. into the social experience of commenting and giving other people feedback. And that is a longstanding tradition in internet communities of all kinds, is you create some sort of social engagement, whether it be message boards or chat or, you know, channels in an online game like World of Warcraft or whatever, you create social experiences and then track to make sure that people are behaving well. And if people are being pro-social in some way, you give them more power, privileges, and visibility. If people Mm -hmm. are being anti-social, you curb them and give them less powers and less visibility. Mm -hmm. So that dynamic is common. Anybody who designs multiplayer social systems, whether it's a game or not, and we absolutely brought that to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the work as well was considering and really analyzing all the ideas that people had. Gamification was very big then, and some people really wanted to do something that looked very gamified. So we analyzed it, and we tested it, and we really looked at it, decided Mm -hmm. not to. But part of um, a lot of the work that goes into products that ship falls on the cutting room floor and you consider things and you go, oh, I see that actually isn't that good an idea, which is a great thing to find out before something ships than after. Absolutely. One of the things that we talk about uh, sometimes here is, is how we convince people of that because um, sometimes people, you know, fall in love with their ideas and, you know, there may be a high level executive who supports a particular perspective, such as gamifying something and you have to convince them that, you know, maybe that's not the right approach. How, um, how did you go about doing that there? Was that, was there, uh, were there challenges in convincing people not to go? Oh, there were absolutely, there were absolutely challenges. So on that project, the way we did it was in layers. We started by carving out like a, a squad of people internally, which included some higher level director level people to work through all the ideas. Um, so we worked through those ideas. That wasn't always easy, but we worked them through. Mm-hmm. And then we collected our, our analysis and our findings, including feedback from customers into a brief Uh, a product brief, which is something that I do a lot on projects. And we have a very specific way of doing a product brief, which includes short interview clips from the interviews and play tests that we do with customers. Mm -hmm. And so we, that product brief, we presented to the leadership at the New York Times. There's a group of people, I think they called it the G9 or the G7 as a reference Mm -hmm. to the G8. But the leaders of the New York Times, um, including, you know, the very head, have to approve all major initiatives. So at the end of that project, we went up to the top floor in this very tall building in Manhattan and presented our product brief and our findings to these people. And they did not crack a smile. Mm. I mean, it was so nerve wracking. But it worked out pretty well. We got started with one of the initiatives that we presented because you got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's often how it goes with, uh, especially with larger companies, more established companies. We do work with a smaller group. We make sure there's a stakeholder involved in the smaller group, at least for like weekly check-ins so that somebody is championing us and understands what we're doing. And then there's a, a presentation at the end which where we summarize 
everything we learned, how we learned it, how we collected the data, how many people we talked to, and what we found. And what I've discovered is that that's all great. That works really well. But there is nothing as convincing as short video clips of real customers saying the key messages that you're Mm -hmm. trying to communicate to your stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't just have that, but if you have a very well-organized presentation that lets people get inside and understand your process, how you got the data, and then you show them their customers giving feedback on these ideas, Mm -hmm. that's very convincing. I have worked with many game companies that got games that have been struggling for months to get greenlit, greenlit, meaning they get budget to be developed um, by using this methodology. And it isn't just the convincing. It isn't just it's a nice convincing presentation. It's that we've actually validated ideas with real people and found out what's going to work and what's going to be a dud before Mm -hmm. building anything. And it's that validation process and then the expression of it that I have found so compelling for working with stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we talk to a lot of people about validation in product discovery and, uh, you know, moving things forward. But I'm curious, because I'm not as familiar with the game industry, what does validation typically look like in the game industry? I mean, I've certainly heard about playtesting, um, but what, tell, tell us more about what's normal there. When you say what's normal in the game industry, first of all, you know, it's all over the place. And part of why that is, is because it's like, what's normal in the movie industry? When Mm -hmm. you think about movies, there's action films, there's little indie films, there's, you know, Ingmar Bergman, you know, depressing Northern European films, there's um, big action films, there's sci-fi, there's so many kinds of films, right? And think about the you know, how do films get greenlit? How do films get made? Well, there's lots of different ways from the big studio process to, you know, it's equivalent of angel investors. So in gaming, there's many different ways that games get greenlit, but I'll tell you about one of the most common. Okay. So in many gaming studios I've worked with, uh, gaming studios will have several projects going at once. The bigger the studio, the more project. And that discovery is when you're like, is this a good idea? Mm -hmm. Should we make this game? And that, so there's a point in most games' lives where there's some sort of demo or some sort of pitch. And that pitch could be static screens. It could be an actual demo of gameplay. It could be a movie that shows how the gameplay might be. There's a lot of ways to do a demo. Mm -hmm. But a game pitch to get greenlit is going to be early in the game's life. It's some idea of here's a game we want to do. Here's how it would play. Here's who it appeals to. Here's why we think we should make it. Okay. Pretty basic. Games will get greenlit, but they'll get greenlit for the next phase. So like, okay, we're going to greenlight this to build a prototype, right? That would be an example. And then, and there's um, milestones, First playable is a very common milestone where it's like an early alpha version. It's something that's actually playable. It's got not all the features, but some of them. Mm -hmm. And then each milestone will be another green light opportunity because games get canceled all the time 
when they first playable, eh, this isn't so good. Uh-oh, our competitor just, re- just released something almost identical. We're not going to go that direction. There's different reasons games get canceled or put on hold. But um, that green light to build the first playable, to build the prototype, to build something is, I've been part of that multiple times. So I know it inside and out. And let me give you an example of a game that we worked on that wasn't greenlit and then was greenlit. And I'll tell you what happened. So this is like stories from the front lines. Yeah, please. So there's a game team at a casual gaming company that had been working on an idea they were excited about for about six months. And they worked up some art. They worked up some gameplay ideas. They presented it to the head of, you know, to the heads of the studio. And they said, this is not innovative enough. This is, looks fun, but it, everything in it feels like a copycat. And the studio was trying to get away from copycat games because they had actually mm-hmm. made quite a few of them. And they wanted to get into the value you get from original IP, so doing something really original. So they kept getting dinged because the game wasn't innovative. And that's when they started working with me. So we dug into the genre and to the customers. And we talked to probably 30 very targeted customers. I have a process I call the super fan funnel. And that's where you find not just, not just average customers, but leading edge customers who are the canary in a coal mine for the next wave of what's going to happen. You can read all about that in my book, how to do it step by step. But we found about 30 hot core early customers who were excited about the genre we were developing in. Mm-hmm. And we, some of them we interviewed, but then we put together um, sketch play tests, not fancy art, but sketches of the experience we wanted to deliver from day zero to day 60. I call those concept scenarios. And it's kind of like a movie storyboard, but it's for a game. And it takes out all the fancy art that can wow people and really shows you the experience over time. What's different on day seven, day 30, day 60, than it was on day one? How is your experience different? What are you doing? What activities are you engaged in as you level up through the game? So that's what we brought to life. And we were able to really shape that gameplay by listening to the customers and understanding what they wanted that wasn't already in the market. So it's finding that blue ocean in a crowded red ocean market that the game thinking methodology and particularly the super fan funnel really surfaces. So we interviewed these customers. We play tested probably 18 out of the 30. We play tested them with the sketches of the you know 60 day experience, refined it based on their feedback, tested it again, went through an iterative cycle, um, captured video clips of their reactions, and then put all that into our presentation. And we went to the board of this company, you know, the, the head of it and everybody involved, and did a presentation saying, here's the game we thought we wanted to build. Then we went and talked to a bunch of people, and we saw that there's this particular kind of activity that they long for, that they're already trying to kind of mock up by with spit and bailing wire using other stuff. Mm. And that's a really common thing to look for. Are, are there people out there trying to make this happen in some way, even though it doesn't exist? So 
we went to the, we presented that and said, here's this blue ocean opportunity. Here's why, here's what people are already doing. Here's uh, this competitor, but they're not the same. Here's this competitor, but they're not the same. In between them is this interesting opportunity. That's where we want to go. Here's the game design. Here's the rollout plan. Like we had, Mm. here's what it is. And it got greenlit. And the team was ecstatic. So a lot of why it was greenlit is it was more innovative, but much more importantly than just innovative, it was meaning a validated market need. And that's the thing that pushed it over the edge. Yeah. There's a lot in there that's very similar to, you know, uh, I guess, lean startup principles, right? And, and agile and lean UX. and uh, Lean startup principles are great for somebody. You know, lean startup came out of the writings of a guy who had worked for bigger companies that were doing waterfile style development. Mm-hmm. And it came out, it's like, wow, you could test something early. You could validate something early. Those of us in game design have been doing this for decades. It's oh, yeah. on the Sims. We validated it for a friggin' year before we started building. Yeah. So um, lean startup is great. It's very similar to lean startup. A lot of people in gaming, when lean startup came out, they're like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we've been doing that for a while. That said, a lot of people in gaming don't do it. There are plenty of people in gaming that subscribe or came up during the auteur model of gaming where there's a genius who's got an idea and you build the idea. Mm-hmm. And you right see now. that in tech, you see that in gaming. Yep. Every once in a while that works out, but mostly it doesn't. Like if you go and talk to Sid Meier, who's one of the great, great game designers of all time, he did Civilization and all the Civilization. I was going to say, I was literally playing Civilization yeah. last night. If you talk to Sid Meier about his process, so much of it is similar to what I advocate and what I teach people. You know, start with the core loop. Find the fun, we call it in gaming, which Mm -hmm. is what is that core activity that people are going to do over and over and over again. You need Mm -hmm. to make sure that works. You need to make sure that's fun. That's a lesson that applies to everybody. We went and we brought that lesson to the New York Times, going back to that story, when we were sitting around the table struggling with which model are you going to go with? One of the things we kept coming back to is, okay, let's suppose subscribers come back and they're three months into their subscription. It's day 90. Mm-hmm. What does a session look like? What are they doing? They come in, they read the paper. Are they being completionist and reading every article? Are they just wanting to be directed at the articles they like? Does the behind the scenes system get smarter? over time so that on day 90, it knows so much more about them than on day one, what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that can be um, improved by always remembering what your core learning loop is. What is it that people are doing and how does that change over time? So that's been one of the biggest time savers and also the biggest ahas for the people I work with in tech outside of gaming. Mm-hmm. because so many people will build beautiful onboarding. And I love onboarding. I've redesigned the onboarding for, you know, dozens of companies. Mm-hmm. Onboarding is incredibly important. But if there's nothing to do on day 30, mm-hmm. onboarding isn't going to get you engagement. So a lot of people make the mistake of focusing on discovery and onboarding. And they don't really have a there there. They don't really have an interesting activity to do over time. Mm -hmm. And onboarding 
can be done anytime. You can make beautiful onboarding right before you launch. You can do onboarding almost anytime because onboarding is an arc. You know, you go through it. Whereas your daily activity experience is a loop. It's a loop that you go through again and again. And if you don't get that right, the most beautiful onboarding in the world isn't going to save you. Mm-hmm. So I hear in some of what you're saying, uh, what sounds like the beginning of the mastery path that you, you sometimes That's say, right. right. Can you tell, tell our listeners more about that? Sure. So many of us in tech are familiar with different models for engaging customers. There's um, the ARG model or the pirate model, A-A-A-R-G, where it's like acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of different models. The model that we find incredibly useful that came out of gaming, but it applies to everyone, is the mastery path model. And the four stages are discovery, onboarding, habit building, and mastery. Discovery is the same as it is everywhere, which is before somebody has signed up, you know, registered, purchased, what is it that they experience? What's the discovery experience? How do they find out about the product or game? So that's discovery. Onboarding, we understand. Onboarding is learning the ropes. Once somebody's gotten involved, how do you teach them the ropes? How quickly can you get them some value going on? How, when do they start interacting with other people, et cetera? All of that is onboarding. Habit building is different than onboarding. A lot of people get them confused. Habit building is once someone's learned the ropes. They're not learning the ropes anymore. What is it that they do regularly? What is it? What's the re-engagement trigger? What is it that pulls them back? And that's habit building. What, like, what are they doing on day 21? That's a good question to ask when you're looking at habit building. Mastery is more of a vector than a stage or a state. But mastery comes post-habit building. If habit building is what you offer for regulars, people that become regulars in your product, mastery is what, what enthusiasts get or experts. So what do you have to offer people on day 90? Um, what do you have to offer people once they've mastered the basic systems? Going back to the New York Times example, in the New York Times, mastery might look like earning the right to um, uh, have your comments float to the top in the New York mm -hmm. Times comment section, or even earning the right to act as a moderator mm -hmm. in some sort of social environment would be a mastery thing where somebody has become such a good customer and they've gotten so involved and you know not, not been a bad actor that they get to have a new kind of experience, a new activity, a new um, power or impact on the environment. A really good Example of this is League of Legends. So League of Legends is a very popular and somewhat controversial multiplayer uh, game. And League of Legends is known for having a lot of toxic behavior that happens in it. It's a very competitive game. Okay. The staff has implemented a lot of very creative systems to manage that. And managing toxic behavior in online games is hard. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you, it's like an air bubble under a rug. You, you think you've got it and it pops up somewhere else. These people are mm -hmm. smart. So um, one of the things League of Legends did, that's a perfect example of going through these stages, is in order to help them manage the online behavior and 
online and deal with consequences for and evaluating the appropriate consequences for people that had you know committed infarctions. They started conscripting some of their players to be judges. They called it the tribunal. Mm. And so players that had not had any bad actor complaints against them and had played for a while, I think it was two months, I forget how long it was exactly, um, were invited to be part of the tribunal. And if you were in the tribunal, you got some training and you were essentially um, first line customer support. Mm -hmm. And you would get cases assigned to you, minor cases, and you would evaluate, does this person need to be booted or banned? Do they just need to be muted? Do they need a 24-hour timeout? Like, what's the appropriate consequence for their behavior? For much more serious ones, they would have their, real, their you know, hired customer support. But they allowed these, it's essentially a metagame. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you can think of it as what we call in gaming the elder game, which is a new kind of activity that's fundamentally different than what you've been doing so far as you grind your way up the ladder. Mm-hmm. This new kind of activity that opens up to the most loyal players. That's mastery. Yeah. And so the, the, um, they in, instituted this system. I don't know if it's still there. This was a few years ago. And they did something else really smart, which is people cycled through. I think you could be a judge for a few months and then you had to take a break. Really smart because people can get like power hungry and they can get into clicks and, you know, mm-hmm. helping their friends and all that kind of stuff. So they made sure there was some healthy um, changing of the guards so that slots would open up for other people. And what a genius move because if another player is, you know, talking to you about your bad behavior, it's really different than, you know, an official customer support person. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of what you can do for mastery that is different than onboarding or habit building and that serves your players and also serves the product. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a really helpful story. Um, so I personally really want to hear a bit about working on the Sims because it's been one of my favorite games for a really long time. And, you know, um, it's one of the games for those of us, you know, um, I feel like maybe in the industry, you might know a lot of game designers names, but there's a few game designers that, that stand out sort of as household names outside of that. And Will Wright is one of them. And so I'm curious to hear what your experience was there and getting, did you get to work with him directly? And what was that like? Yes. I worked with Will really closely on a number of projects, including the Sims and um, the Sims was amazing. So at the very beginning, uh, Will and Bing Gordon and I, and a few other people were imagining it. So visioning, right? Mm -hmm. And that happens at the beginning of every project. There's some form of it with Will Visioning always involves tinkering and prototyping. So Will and his small team built multiple throwaway prototypes, multiple, like just this went on and on for months and months. So it's, and what we were trying to do is just what I was talking about earlier, find the core loop, find the fun. Mm -hmm. Is the core activity this? Is the core activity that? We were experimenting and trying all these different things. Talk about lean startup, right? This mm-hmm. is exactly what the kind of thing they would um, recommend. Except with lean startup, they recommend a lot of times testing your marketing rather than the core loop. So, so as a side note, if you're testing a fake landing page, you're testing your marketing message, which is great. But that's you're testing discovery. Yep. When you're testing like Will did, you're testing habit building. 
Right. Right. And it's much harder to get that right. So we did a long time of all these little experiments. And then when one of the experiments was really starting to gel with the interactive, then started to add some more um, functionality to it, built it up into a prototype, got it greenlit, worked on it some more. Um, I dipped in and out of that project. I was part of it at the very beginning, the visioning. Mm-hmm. And I and the and looking at and reacting to those small prototypes. Then I got very involved again uh, as we were heading into beta, mm-hmm. and doing one of the things I worked a lot on was onboarding. Actually, getting the onboarding smoothed out, and then uh, some of the just the core interactive systems. And then when we were getting at the end of beta, when we were getting ready to ship, we and then post ship. I worked really hard on the website, which made the Sim single-player experience into a multiplayer experience. So I had worked before on SimCity, on the SimCity website, mm-hmm. creating uh, social and rating systems, because that's my specialty, mm-hmm. or it was at the time. So on SimCity, we had had a system where people could upload their city to the website to show it off, and they could upload yep. objects, blah, blah, blah. For the Sims... We let people upload a series of screenshots they'd taken in the game and tell a story with it. And then we let other people read and rate those stories. Perhaps you remember this on the website. I do remember this. I definitely That was my system. So I (laughs) I, myself and my team I was working with designed that, tested it, tuned it, built it. Mm -hmm. So that was the other thing that we worked on after The Sims. And it's natural that I would work on that given that I'm a multiplayer designer and that makes it multiplayer. It exploded. That feature absolutely exploded. The stories people were telling were unbelievable. They were about their personal trauma and being adopted and moving around the world and being a foster kid. Like the stories people were telling were, they were unbelievable. And the thing that was crazy was the feature to take a snapshot in your game automatically with like one click got added near the end of beta. It almost didn't make it into the game. Mm. For a bunch of reasons. But that feature enabled, that one little feature, enabled the storytelling. The website enabled the storytelling to be shared with the world. And it was a huge part of what made the the Sims so compelling socially and culturally. Yeah. And then um, I worked with Will later on other games And I was also, I helped produce Will's masterclass. So I want to make sure that all of your listeners know that the great, brilliant, amazing Will Wright, who I adore, and I learned so much from, has a masterclass, part of masterclass.com. It was uh, produced last summer, and I was the on-set interviewer. They hired me to help bring it to life. So Mm -hmm. I watched the whole thing come to life. I've been working in gaming for a couple of decades. I've worked with Will on three different projects. I learned a ton just sitting there listening to him. Mm -hmm. I cannot encourage you enough. Go check out Will Wright's Game Design Masterclass. If you want to take what I just told you times a million. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah, that sounds so good. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, I know we're running out of time, so let me switch gears and ask. Uh, I always like to ask my guests if they have one piece of advice for someone who's earlier on in their career. Um, you know, what would you tell them? Don't separate testing and design. Try as much as you can to put those two things together. 
So one of the biggest learnings I have from my years working on hundreds of projects and watching some of those projects turn into massive hits and watching many of them fail is that the best designers are aggressive about finding out what's wrong with their idea as well as what's right with it as early as possible. People that are precious about their ideas, people that just want to breathe life into the idea and love it and show their friends and, you know, get money and just like they're so in love with their idea are not the best entrepreneurs. The, the way to become an excellent product manager, product designer, entrepreneur, innovator is to be relentless about testing with the right people as early as possible and be joyous when you discover the things that are wrong with your idea as well as right with them. That, if I had learned that earlier and been less defensive about my ideas, I think I would have gotten even further in my career. And I got pretty far. And now as, you know, a very, very experienced game and product designer, I trust my own ideas even less than I did 20 years ago. Because I know it's not so important what I think, it's what the customers we're designing for think. That's right. And one of the biggest problems I see in companies, and I help companies get around this, is siloing um, research and design. Having the game team do the design, and then once it's in beta, having research do like user interface testing. That doesn't work very well. What Mm -hmm. works way better is to put those teams together and really have your customer insights team or just you if you're a smaller group or team do concept testing early, 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 like I described with those storyboards over time. The amount of time and money you'll save is unbelievable. And people that have this skill, this skill to put design and testing together, have a superpower that's going to get them jobs, prestige, and most of all, successful shipped products. That's fantastic. You can't see it, but I'm grinning from ear to ear. That's so, um, so valuable advice. I really appreciate it. So I know you have to go, but the last thing I wanted to ask you is just, um, I know you have a membership community for rising product leaders called the G School. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I would love to. So G School is a monthly membership that includes an unbelievable amount of value. It includes our entire course library, the innovation sprint, which covers game thinking, cooperative design, community design, progression design, how to build concept scenarios like I told you about, how to build a mastery path teardown so you can do awesome competitive analysis. All of that is included along with expert coaching and one-on-one onboarding with a certified game thinking coach. We run a certification program as well, and we've got now 24 certified game thinking coaches from all over the world. And they are part of G School. So for anyone listening, you can go to gamethinking.io slash G School to learn more about G School. You can also just go to gschool.io. That's a quick URL. We will be opening it to the public in October. And right now it's open for early bird signups, which will close uh, at the beginning of September. So any of you cutting edge people 
check it out now. Folks who are um, a little more, uh, a little not quite so cutting edge, October is when our big public launch is going to be. And I also want to mention that if certification sounds interesting to you, go to gamethinking.io slash certification, that our next cohort will be launching in October. It is application only. We don't take everybody. But um, for anybody, for any uh, startup CEO or coach or trainer or product manager who wants to dramatically level up your skill set and bring it to your entire organization, our certification program, which is a six-month program, is awesome. And, I mean, the glowing reviews speak for themselves. However, G School delivers much of what you get there at a slower pace where you can move at your own pace and really dig in and learn game thinking and level up your skill set at a ridiculously low price. So check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, It's been fantastic to talk to you and uh, I hope you have a, a great day. Wonderful to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me on. That was Amy Jo Kim, founder and CEO of Game Thinking Academy. You can find Amy Joe at gamethinking.io. You can also find her on LinkedIn under Amy Joe Kim or on Twitter as well with Amy Joe Kim. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.